Welcome to Zensylvania. My name is Eric Adrians, and I'll be your host, tour guide, or master of ceremonies. You decide which. In Zensylvania, I explore motorcycle zen, literature, philosophy, and a variety of other obsessions which provide me with meaningful and sometimes unexpected insights into living the kind of life I want to live and being the kind of person I want to be. I'm not an expert in any of these things. In fact, it would probably be a mistake for me to claim to be an expert in anything at all. But I can be a dedicated enthusiast, and I generally try to maintain a beginner's mind when it comes to life and all of the wonderful things there are to learn while living it. I take an iterative approach to this podcast and website project. The content that you see or hear today may be updated tomorrow, next week, or even next year. With your feedback and participation, I hope Zensylvania is the kind of place that keeps us, you and I, visiting often. I want to take a moment to thank those who have supported and encouraged the Zensylvania project. In a wide world with billions of places to draw your attention and interest, I'm happy that you've chosen to spend some of your time here. Thank you very much to Carolyn and Richard for being my first Patreon supporters. I really do appreciate you. I'm glad that you've decided to visit me here in Zensylvania. Maybe together we'll be able to figure a few things out. I certainly hope we manage to have a good time. Zensylvania, it's a state of mind. The question why comes back again and again and has become a major reason for wanting to deliver this Chautauqua. Why did they butcher it so? The biggest clue seemed to be their expressions. They were hard to explain, good-natured, friendly, easygoing, and uninvolved. They were like spectators. You had the feeling that they had just wandered in there themselves and somebody had handed them a wrench. There was no identification with the job. While at work, I was thinking about this same lack of care in the digital computer manuals I was editing. Writing and editing technical manuals is what I do for a living the other 11 months of the year, and I knew they were full of errors, ambiguities, omissions, and information so completely screwed up you had to read them six times to make any sense out of them. But what struck me for the first time was the agreement of these manuals with the spectator attitude I had seen in the shop. These were spectator manuals. It was built into the format of them. Implicit in every line is the idea that here is the machine, isolated in time and in space from everything else in the universe. It has no relationship to you. You have no relationship to it other than to turn certain switches, maintain voltage levels, check for error conditions, and so on. That's it. The mechanics in their attitude toward the machine were really taking no different attitude from the manuals toward the machine or from the attitude I had when I brought it in there. We were all spectators. And it occurred to me 
there is no manual that deals with the real business of motorcycle maintenance. The most important aspect of all, caring about what you are doing is considered either unimportant or taken for granted. On this trip, I think we should notice it, explore it a little, to see if in that strange separation of what man is from what man does, we may have some clues as to what the hell has gone wrong in the 20th century. I don't want to hurry it. That itself is a poisonous 20th century attitude. When you want to hurry something, that means you no longer care about it and want to get on to other things. I just want to get at it slowly, but carefully and thoroughly, with the same attitude I remember was present just before I found that sheared pin. It was that attitude that found it, nothing else. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Chapter 3 You may have noticed from that brief chapter reading that this is part five in my as yet indeterminate series of examinations of Robert Persig's Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. For now, I'm looking at chapter two of the book. You may wish to go back to earlier parts of the series before taking this one on, but it isn't obligatory in any way. You may also want to listen to my On Footnotes essay, which is available on the website in print and is included in the first episode of this series, just to get a sense of why I've titled so many essays in this way. But as I've indicated previously, it isn't necessary to backtrack if you're not inclined to. At only about nine pages, the second chapter is a relatively brief one, but it contains two of the book's most memorable at least for me, motorcycle-themed scenes, and a number of interesting passages which reinforce Persig's messages about self-reliance, and one or two other really critical themes are developed. The chapter begins with a reminder that Persig and his companions have only just begun their motorcycle vacation. Similarly for us as the reader, we have only just begun exploration of Persig's journey and philosophy as well. The first paragraph of the chapter starts like this. The road winds on and on. We stop for rests and lunch, exchange small talk, and settle down to the long ride. The beginning fatigue of afternoon balances the excitement of the first day, and we move steadily not fast, not slow. I interpret this as a kind of prescription by Persig for approaching both the reading of this book and for approaching life, remembering that the motorcycle journey is a metaphor for living life. It isn't a terrible prescription to take breaks out from the business of life's journey, to stop for rests, meals, and the small and inconsequential talk that doesn't carry immediacy and import. To move steadily through life, neither fast nor slow, is probably a good thing. And from that chapter sample that I opened this episode with, we can see that this 
thesis of steadily, neither fast nor slow, is something Persig repeated near the end of the chapter. Appreciate how internally consistent Persig's writing is. It isn't merely repetition, it is also reinforcement. Well, typical of Persig, the next paragraph seems to continue about the motorcycle riding, but actually introduces a brand new theme and frankly, a very ominous element. It says, lately, there's been a sense of something as if we were being watched or followed. Well, if you haven't read the book, my next comments may be something of a spoiler, but my presumption is that anyone following this series is either already familiar with the book or will appreciate that I'm trying to unpack Persig's design as we go. Well, this brief passage is a very early hint of a ghostly presence inside the narrator's mind. It's a terrific bit of foreshadowing and reinforces one of my arguments that Zen in the Art may fairly be called a gothic or ghost story. This is the introduction of a theme of ghosts and ghastly elements that will come up many times in the book. Then in the third paragraph, Persick seems to break away yet again and takes time to talk about the blue flax blossoms in a nicely phrased poetic line talking about the fields along the road. He says, some of them are blue with flax blossoms moving in long waves like the surface of the ocean. This mention of the ocean is also a bit of foreshadowing as Chris, Persig's son, and the narrator do eventually arrive at the Pacific Ocean. With the hint of ghostly presence and mention of the ocean, I'm reminded of S.T. Coleridge's Rime of the Ancient Mariner. I don't think this is a far stretch. Persig is clearly conjuring maritime imagery in the next paragraph describing the plains. It says, as if you were sailing out from a choppy coastal harbor, noticed that the waves had taken on a deep swell and turned back to see that you were out of sight of land. The ominous tone that Persig introduced is very effectively reinforced. And then he says, I have a feeling none of us fully understands what four days on this prairie in July will be like. Well, it's all quite ominous and threatening, isn't it? Persig moderately softens these comments with memories of other trips and with discussion of the group's planning. But the suspense and hint of tortures and trials to come is absolutely established. And here I want to mention that Zen in the Art also often recalls to mind the first part of Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy, The Inferno. It's a kind of invocation, isn't it? Four days on the prairie in the July heat, a road that winds on and on, just as Dante and Virgil wound their way into hell's circles. Well, Zen in the art is absolutely in line with epic poetry traditions, and it should be reinforced that Persig was absolutely able to bring this imagery in without feeling the need to explain that this is what he was doing. Zen in the art is Persig's divine comedy. It's a story of his midlife's journey. The narrator says of the trip, 
through hell that he felt Sylvia should go along to maintain harmony for the riders. To arrive after days of hard travel across the prairies would be to see them in another way as a promised land. The narrator's comments about Sylvia being along for the ride through a hellish prairie may be a reminder of Dante's goal to be united with Beatrice. After all, that was the end goal, the promised land for Dante. But clearly, Persig is taking a different tack. And while Sylvia may be a kind of analogue of Beatrice, clearly they are not the same. Suffice it to say, it is valuable to ponder who the narrator's companions in this epic journey are and what function they may serve in Persig's design. Next in the chapter comes an interlude wherein the narrator provides a kind of amusing anecdote of a father-son trip from Minnesota to Canada. Now, this is interesting to me as my family and I spent several years living in Thunder Bay, Ontario, the area that is immediately north of Minnesota and could have been a kind of destination for that trip. I'm certainly very familiar with the geography while this is personally interesting, I think the reference to Canada is another one of Persig's reinforcements. In American literature and popular culture, Canada is often presented as a kind of wilderness garden of Eden, a promised land, so to speak, a serene place to escape to. Perhaps this observation of mine about American culture is a bit oversimplified, be that as it may, the accuracy of this picture of Canada is certainly highly questionable. The anecdote is filled with rain, mishaps, and misery, ultimately leading to an end of the trip when the narrator failed to diagnose an empty fuel tank. The story fulfills a number of tasks, and all of the storms and misery fulfilled the kind of storms of rhyme of the ancient mariner or the horrible stations along Dante's path. It shows the narrator and Persig as someone not unlike everyone else. He's had failures and times when he was unprepared for the storms of life, to the point of being on the side of the road without gas and without even knowing he didn't have gas. To one extent or another, we all start out as a younger version of ourselves and without all of the knowledge and preparation to deal with the storms we will have to face, both literal and metaphorical. I've found myself on the side of the road in a vehicle with no gas on a couple of occasions, once in the middle of a cold winter day. I've also found occasion to be on the side of the road variously lacking oil, transmission fluid, brake fluid, power steering fluid, and engine coolant. My point is that life can be complicated, and as it gets more complicated, there are more things that can shut you down. Whatever the cause, being shut down can bring about a deep and genuine dejection. Being shut down with no clue why you're shut down is particularly awful but it is the helplessness, whether you know why you're shut down or not, that takes the toll. And this is what Persig describes, 
his son's tearful questions of why the fun is all over. Why am I shut down? Why can't things just move ahead? Piercic says, but there weren't any mechanics, just cut over pine trees and brush and rain. Well, this certainly is the geography of northern Minnesota and northwestern Ontario. This is the emotional wilderness. No help from specialists who know what to do. No shelter from the storm. Just the storm. Persig said the machine they were on, and there was no brand mentioned, was a six and one half horsepower cycle way overloaded with luggage and way underloaded with common sense. Clearly, the motorcycle trip into Canada is a metaphorical depiction of progressing through life. And it's also a call to self-reliance in education. We have to learn how to live, how to make it through the storms, and how to equip ourselves and be prepared. And the story is summed up with, now we are on a 28-horse machine, and I take the maintenance of it very seriously. As life's stakes are greater, we owe it to ourselves to take things a bit more seriously. Right now, as you are living your life, whether you're, metaphorically speaking, operating an 8.5 horsepower machine, 28 horsepower machine, or indeed the latest 125 horsepower high-tech delight, I wonder how seriously you have taken the maintenance of that machine. And if that machine is not a motorcycle at all, but is in fact your own self, what has been your attitude to these things? I wonder how seriously I've taken these things myself. There seems to be something in the world that doesn't give much encouragement to giving serious consideration to maintenance. It's either assumed to be irrelevant or presumed to be taken care of without effort or forethought on our part. But I'm not sure trouble-free motoring has ever been a real thing for anyone. Still, we seem to live in a world and a society that is predisposed to using things up rather than engaging with them as things to be conserved. This seems to be a fundamental feature of contemporary attitudes, and it does seem to be a genuine problem. In the chapter, suddenly John cuts in on his motorcycle. That's the character from the first chapter who we know doesn't even want to think about maintenance. John, who is heading into hell's circles, ignorant and unprepared. Well, he cuts in to tell the narrator that they'd ridden past a sign for their turnoff. He tells the narrator, and perhaps also us, that that sign was as big as a barn door. And it is big as a barn door, isn't it? Are you prepared for life storms? Have you been taking things seriously enough? Will you be able to diagnose when your gas tank, radiator, oil pan, brake fluid, or power steering fluid reservoir are full or empty? Or the complicated contemporary life reservoirs for which they are metaphors. 
the narrator's realization of his inattention to the road, of having missed that big as a barn door sign while pursuing his memories of the past trip, set the narrator to checking his engine temperature. Effectively, the narrator is shaken out of focusing on the past and shaken into putting his attention back in the moment, the here and now. I want to take a moment to recall Persig's mention in Chapter 1 that country road sign makers don't often tell you twice. One may assume that this is particularly true when the sign is as big as a barn door. Well, soon, however, a second set of memories takes hold of the narrator's attention and a new lesson is investigated. It's another of the most memorable motorcycle-themed scenes in the book. It pertains to anyone who has needed to deal with mechanics. Mechanics, of course, are the specialists who fit the motorcycle metaphor. And the narrator's story ought to be applied to all of the various specialists and professionals upon whom we give our dependence. And we do give our dependence, don't we? Lawyers, doctors, psychologists, bankers, financial planners, plumbers, university professors, politicians, all of the contemporary specialists who we allow to fix and perhaps sometimes even design our problems for us. These specialists and the problems they correspond to often set us on particular paths or roads, don't they? And rather like Persig's narrator, it isn't unusual to find ourselves lost in the memories of yesterday or the dreams of tomorrow, rather than focusing on the road we're actually on right now. Anyone who has dealt with any professional, particularly a professional who clearly does not seem to know what they're doing, will share the narrator's frustration and concern. It's frankly one of the most valuable scenes in the book. It talks about care, about professionalism, about people being engaged in what they're doing, and about being competent. Right now, we are living the times that Persig is talking about. Do we give over our lives, that is to say, place ourselves in a position of dependence upon these incompetent, uninvolved chimpanzees, when there are big as a barn door signs that they've simply wandered in and been handed a wrench. After all, it is your motorcycle going home with you after you've paid the fees. Persig runs through the clues and decides it's the expressions, good-natured, friendly, easygoing, and uninvolved, that were the big as a barn door cues he ought to have noticed. Persig then explains he's a technical writer and found the spectator attitude in the manuals. It occurred to him there was no manual that deals with the real business of motorcycle maintenance. And may I say, the real business of living your life. The most important aspect of all, caring about what you're doing is considered either unimportant or taken for granted. It bears repeating that the mechanics that Persig's narrator recalled are stand-ins for all of the specialists who we give our dependence to. Lawyers, 
doctors, psychologists, social workers, professors, politicians, I think you take my meaning. You may have noticed from the introduction to the Zensylvania podcast that I've emphasized that I think it would be a mistake for me to claim to be an expert in anything at all. It isn't that I necessarily view expertise as problematic, though. It's our relationship to expertise, and indeed our relationship to experts, which seems, in my experience, to be very problematic indeed. This caring about life by ourselves about our own lives or alternately by the specialists and professionals when we choose to be spectators rather than the primary agents of our lives this caring is the central concern and we need to approach this caring steadily neither fast nor slow this reference to a spectator should remind us that the narrator mentioned that he felt someone was watching earlier in the chapter some form of spectator. So a spectator theme arrives with two distinct, though not necessarily unrelated purposes. The ominous spectator that seems to be monitoring the narrator's journey, and also this idea of being a spectator to one's own life. Naturally enough, it reminds us that in Zen meditation, there's a concept of observing your own thoughts. Finally, at the end of the chapter, the narrator suddenly notices that the land has flattened into what he calls a Euclidean plain. He says that the riders have entered into the Red River Valley. I can't help but refer to the last episode of Zensylvania, which contains an incomplete examination of fuzzy logic. I spent some time in that episode connecting the dots between Persig as a technical writer and the field of formal logic. Here is another big as a barn door sign that Persig's writing is involved in logic and mathematics. Who would write that a group of writers have entered a Euclidean plane of all things? In mathematics, a plane is a flat two-dimensional surface that extends indefinitely in all directions. The fact that the narrator describes the Red River Valley as a Euclidean plane is a very unusual and a very clear reference to Euclid, the ancient thinker and mathematician. We have to stop to think what Persig might be up to. It's not an indiscreet reference. In fact, it is big as a barn door, but it's up to us to consider what the sign may be pointing at or to. For me, I'm reminded of navigation and the first chapter of Zen and the Art, when the narrator talks about dead reckoning. In the earlier footnotes episodes, I've spoken about my opinion that the book uses motorcycles as a metaphor for the self and a motorcycle journey as a metaphor for living life. And also that the idea of dead reckoning one's way through life is quite an interesting way to think about how we navigate our way from one point to another of our human existence. Earlier in this essay, we've seen how Persig continues to use these established themes to place the storms of life as a real presence in living a life. I've also said that Zen and the art is Robert Persig's analog to Dante Alighieri's midlife journey, the so-called divine comedy. 
For Dante, his trip through the Inferno was a series of descending circles. For Persig, the Inferno seems to be a Euclidean plane, a flat two-dimensional surface that extends unbroken in all directions. A featureless place devoid even of the sparse cover that a few cut-over pine trees had offered during past trips. The fact that Persig used the language of mathematics to describe his inferno is not unimportant. It is, in fact, a part of Persig's overall design. How, in fact, does one navigate a two-dimensional, featureless surface that extends unbroken in all directions? And perhaps dead reckoning is, in fact, the answer. With this very unusual reference, the narrator, and of course Robert Persig, ends the rather ominous second chapter of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Well, now that we've reached the end of our examination of the second chapter of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, let's finish with a brief reading of that second motorcycle-themed anecdote recounted by the narrator. I'm going to pick it up on page 24 of my white-covered edition of the book. On an air-cooled engine like this, extreme overheating can cause a seizure. This machine has had one, in fact three of them. I check it from time to time the same way I would check a patient who has had a heart attack, even though it seems cured. In a seizure, the pistons expand from too much heat, become too big for the walls of the cylinders, seize them, melt them sometimes, and lock the engine and rear wheel and start the whole cycle into a skid. The first time this one seized, my head was pitched over the front wheel and my passenger was almost on top of me. At about 30, it freed up again and started to run, but I pulled off the road and stopped to see what was wrong. All my passenger could think to say was, what did you do that for? I shrugged and was puzzled as he was, and stood there with the cars whizzing by, just staring. The engine was so hot, the air around it shimmered, and we could feel the heat radiate. When I put a wet finger on it, it sizzled like a hot iron, and we rode home slowly, with a new sound, a slap that meant the pistons no longer fit, and an overhaul was needed. I took this machine into a shop because I thought it wasn't important enough to justify getting into myself, having to learn all the complicated details, and maybe having to order parts and special tools, and all that time dragging stuff when I could get someone else to do it in less time. Sort of John's attitude. The shop was a different scene from the ones I remembered. The mechanics, who had once all seemed like ancient veterans now looked like children. A radio was going full blast and they were clowning around and talking and seemed not to notice me. When one of them finally came over, he barely listened to the piston slap before saying, oh yeah, tappets. Tappets? I should have known then what was coming. Two weeks later, I paid their bill for $140 rode the cycle carefully at varying low speeds to wear it in, and then, after 1,000 miles, opened it up. At about 75, it seized again and freed at 30, the same as before. When I brought it back, they accused me of 
not raking it in properly, but after much argument, agreed to look into it. They overhauled it again, and this time took it out themselves for a high-speed road test. It seized on them this time. After the third overhaul, two months later, they replaced the cylinders, put in oversized main carburetor jets, retarded the timing to make it run as coolly as possible, and told me, don't run it fast. It was covered with grease and did not start. I found the plugs were disconnected, connected them, and started it. And now there really was a tappet noise. They hadn't adjusted them. I pointed this out and the kid came with an open-end adjustable wrench set wrong and swiftly rounded both of the sheet aluminum tappet covers, ruining both of them. I hope we've got some of those in stock, he said. I nodded. He brought out a hammer and a cold chisel and started to pound them loose. The chisel punched through the aluminum cover and I could see he was pounding the chisel right into the engine head. On the next blow, he missed the chisel completely and struck the head with the hammer, breaking off a portion of two of the cooling fins. Just stop, I said politely, feeling this was a bad dream. Just give me some new covers and I'll take it the way it is. I got out of there as soon as possible, noisy tappets, shot toppet covers, greasy machine down the road, and then felt a bad vibration at speeds over 20. At the curb, I discovered two of the four engine mounting bolts were missing, and a nut was missing from the third. The whole engine was hanging on by one bolt. The overhead cam chain tensioner bolt was also missing, meaning it would have been hopeless to try to adjust the tappets anyway. Nightmare. The thought of John putting his BMW into the hands of one of these people is something I've never brought up with him. Maybe I should. I found the cause of the seizures a few weeks later, waiting to happen again. It was a little 25-cent pin in the internal oil delivery system that had been sheared and was preventing oil from reaching the head at high speeds. The question, why, comes back again and again, and has become a major reason for wanting to deliver this Chautauqua. Why did they butcher it so? These were not people running away from technology, like John and Sylvia. These were the technologists themselves. They just sat down to a job, and they performed it like chimpanzees. Nothing personal in it. There was no obvious reason for it. And I tried to think back into that shop, the nightmare place, to try to remember anything that could have been the cause. The radio was a clue. You can't really think hard about what you're doing and listen to the radio at the same time. Maybe they didn't see their job as having anything to do with hard thought, just wrench twiddling. If you can twiddle wrenches while listening to the radio, that's more enjoyable. Their speed was another clue. They were really slopping things around in a hurry and not looking where they slopped them. More money that way if you don't stop to think that it usually takes longer or comes out worse. But the biggest clue seemed to be their expressions. They were hard to explain. Good-natured, friendly, easygoing, and uninvolved. They were like spectators. You had the feeling they had just wandered in there themselves and somebody had handed them a wrench. There was no identification with the job, no saying, I am a mechanic. At 5 p.m. or 
whenever their eight hours were in, you knew they would cut it off and not have another thought about their work. They were already trying not to have any thoughts about their work on the job. In their own way, they were achieving the same thing John and Sylvia were, living with technology without really having anything to do with it. Or rather, they had something to do with it, but their own selves were outside of it, detached, removed. They were involved in it, but not in such a way as to care. Not only did these mechanics not find that sheared pin, but it was clearly a mechanic who had sheared it in the first place, by assembling the side cover plate improperly. I remember the previous owner had said a mechanic had told him the plate was hard to get on. That was why. The shop manual had warned about this, but like the others, he was probably in too much of a hurry, or he didn't care. While at work, I was thinking about this same lack of care in the digital computer manuals I was editing. Writing and editing technical manuals is what I do for a living the other 11 months of the year, and I knew they were full of errors, ambiguities, omissions, and information so completely screwed up you had to read them six times to make any sense out of them. But what struck me for the first time was the agreement of these manuals with the spectator attitude I had seen in the shop. These were spectator manuals. It was built into the format of them. Implicit in every line is the idea that here is the machine, isolated in time and in space from everything else in the universe. It has no relationship to you. You have no relationship to it, other than to turn certain switches, maintain voltage levels, check for error condition, and so on. That's it. The mechanics in their attitude toward the machine were really taking no different attitude from the manuals toward the machine or from the attitude I had when I brought it in there. We were all spectators. And it occurred to me there is no manual that deals with the real business of motorcycle maintenance, the most important aspect of all. Caring about what you are doing is considered either unimportant or taken for granted. On this trip, I think we should notice it, explore it a little, to see if, in that strange separation of what man is from what man does, we may have some clues as to what the hell has gone wrong in the 20th century. I don't want to hurry it. That itself is a poisonous 20th century attitude. When you want to hurry something, that means you no longer care about it and want to get on to other things. I just want to get at it slowly, but carefully and thoroughly, with the same attitude I remember was present just before I found that sheared pin. It was that attitude that had found it, nothing else. for joining me in this part of Zensylvania. I hope you've enjoyed your time listening to the podcast as much as I did putting it together. You can find text versions of Zensylvania stories and essays at zensylvania.com. If you've enjoyed the content you've heard so far, please subscribe, tell your friends, and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'd also love to hear your thoughts. My email address is zensylvaniapodcast at gmail.com 
or you may wish to use the link in the episode description box to leave a voice message for use in this or a future episode. If you'd like to support the Zensylvania podcast, you can find us on Patreon or buy me a coffee. Thank you again for joining me in Zensylvania. It's a state of mind.